Welcome to Americana One. This is Ken Paulson, and today we are delighted to talk with the Reverend Sean Amos. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me, man. You've uh, got an exciting new album coming out, and uh, it's it's Reverend Sean Amos and the Brotherhood. What is the date of that release? April 17th. Okay. Yeah, the album's called Blue Sky. And this is a, a new project in, in that you've had all kinds of recording experiences. Is this the first Brotherhood record? It technically isn't. Uh, so the Brotherhood is Brady Blade on drums, uh, who is uh, known to a lot of Americana fans. Uh, Christopher, <laughs> Christopher Thomas on bass, who's played Nora Jones, and actually played with Brady's brother, Brian Blade, in the, in the Brian Blade Fellowship for many years. And then my longtime uh, guitarist, Dr. Roberts. And we actually all played together in 2015 on my first blues album. Uh, which is called The Reverend Sean Amos Loves You. Uh, it wasn't billed as a Brotherhood album. And we made that album and sort of dispersed and went off our separate ways uh, and then came back together late last year for some shows. And we decided, you know what, we, uh, we're more of a band than we realized. And so, <laughs> so we decided to throw our lot in together with each other. Well, you've got a fascinating background. Um, you come from entrepreneurial roots. You're, you are, your father is uh, Wally Amos, founder of Famous Amos. Uh, and then, and then your career is interesting because it's not a traditional, certainly not a traditional blues man's background. Correct. I don't know. It's a bit, a, a bit of the tragedy and pathos, but uh, but other than that, yeah, it's pretty different. And uh, and what I struck by is just the how you uh, you step into this role where you're a blues artist. You got a band. Um, it really, as accomplished and as educated about the music industry as anyone can. I mean, it's typically the inverse. People learn the hard lessons the yeah, hard way. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, tell me about your early relationship with Quincy Jones. Um, well, I actually knew Quincy when I was a baby. My, my father and Quincy were colleagues back in the day in New York. So my father was an agent at the William Morris Agency. Uh, he was the first black agent in the business. Wow. And still probably one of one of the few black agents that exist in the business. Uh, and he booked all the Motown acts and Solomon Burke, who I later worked with, coincidentally. And um, and he signed Simon and Garfunkel and the Animals. Wow. And, and Quincy, at the same time, was an A&R guy over at Mercury Records uh, and then a staff producer. And so they were colleagues and in the same scene together. Uh, and they all moved to Los Angeles around the same time from New York, around the year I was born, which was 1967. So I knew Quincy as a baby, and then I didn't see him for many years, and flash forward to uh, to year 2000, I think, and I was uh, an A&R executive at Rhino Records, which was the old uh, reissue label, and I uh, produced Quincy's uh, career-spanning box set of his, his life's work, and that got to be acquainted, so he was like, Oh my God, Sean! You're all grown up, and <laughs> and, uh, and so we worked on that box for a while, and then he uh, had a foundation called the Quincy Jones Listen Up Foundation, and he asked me to run it, and I said no, and he asked me to run it again, uh, and I said uh, I'm not so sure, <laughs> and then he said come up to my house and let's talk about it, and, and Quincy is, pers- is uh, persuasive, and so I ran his foundation for a year, uh, which is a, kind of a you know major through the looking glass experience. Do you, uh, do you remember specific lessons? Of oh, my God, so many. I mean, yeah, I've been so lucky because, you know, I, I grew up around music. You know, my dad was an agent and he was a manager. And, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood on the A&M Records lot in Hollywood and, you know, and in sound stages and recording studios. And I, I've seen a lot of people at work, you know, creating, doing creative work. Uh, Quincy, man, I mean, one was, you know, cherish your mistakes. Mm. Um the other one, which he's told other people as well, is uh, leave space for God to walk in the room. Which is, uh-huh. yeah, you can plan, you can plan, you can plan, you can map it all out. He's he, he's he's an uber planner, but at some 
moment you have to allow for uh, you know, inspiration and, and also be able to roll with it, you know, as, right. as things invariably, invariably go south. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you about your, your rhino and shout factory ears, but first, let's, we should not deprive people of hearing your music any longer. Uh, why don't we uh, check out the, the initial release, uh, the single from sure. the album. It's called uh, Counting Down the Days. That was Counting Down the Days by the Reverend Sean Amos and the Brotherhood. And uh, representative of your sound, would you say? Yeah, this album, that, that, that song is probably the hardest song on the album. Um, you know, this album is really, was it, I started off in Americana. I made a bunch of Americana records really early on, early, uh, like early 2000s, late 90s. And when you know Wilco was coming up, and I was sort of like in, in the in the beginnings of that scene emerging on the fringes of it. When we began to call it Americana, yeah, exactly. Right. And um, I remember the first Americana fest at like the Marriott or something in Nashville. Mm-hmm. It's a hotel lobby. I was there. I was there as well. Were you, were you there to see Johnny Cash get his award? Yes. <laughs> I, I I I helped carry Johnny on stage. That oh night. my God! We, right. We, we gave him the free speech yeah, award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, really early days, and then I you know. Left, you know, playing music and started producing other people and doing an R, and I got and I discovered blues, and so with this album, I really uh, gave myself some permission to revisit my Americana roots. That, that's great. Um, and so a lot of the songs reflect that, but there's also some straight up blues stuff. Very cool. Um, I should say, just for the record, when I refer to Johnny Cash being carried on stage. He wasn't drunk. He was that close. He was he was infirm and and, yeah. and uh, what was amazing, just an aside, which is unprofessional of me. Um, when spotlight hit him, as you may recall, uh, he got a he caller, was, yeah. and he, <laughs> he became Johnny. He knew Cash. the deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, it, it's uh, it's it's deep in the DNA. So I wanted to touch briefly on the on the Rhino years, yeah. because you know Rhino, uh, your work and others was so important, so critical. Um, that label was not afraid to take any artist of merit, clean up the. To take the masters, preserve them, clean up everything, and shared it. Yeah. And it, it wasn't necessarily the critics' favorites. It could be the electric prunes, whatever it was. It was. Well, Brian came about at a time when literally labels were throwing away masters. Right. I mean, they thought, you know, we're done with this. No one's going to buy this stuff again. And unless it was, you know, something in the top sort of 100 of their, you know, earnings um, artists, they, they were literally tossing masters out. So Rhino was really smart at seeing the value in this stuff when no one else did. I mean, the reissue markets didn't exist. There wasn't a niche music market, and they, they invented it, quite literally. So do you feel some moral obligation when you're the guy who has to chronicle a movement, a sound, an artist? I mean, you're going to create the definitive box set of yeah, somebody. it's a huge responsibility. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and you're playing psychologist a lot. I mean, working on Quincy's box set and, um, you know, working on another sort of single and, and multi-artist box sets. You really, um, yeah. You know, there's there's generally a resistance. You know, I mean, most artists don't want to be boxed up like that because it, it sort of a, it doesn't mean it's over, right? Yeah. Is, is there any new stuff that's to come? And so there's a little bit of a, a psychology game in, in helping them 
Um, and not everyone wants to look back. You know, yeah. Not everyone's look, even though successful people don't always want to look back because you're, you know, you're, you're constantly thinking about, thinking about what's next. So, um, yeah, you're, you're a little bit of a shrink and you're a little bit of a, you know, you're a lot of an archivist, right. um, an archaeologist and a, and a, and a, and a sort of social anthropologist or something. Uh, it, 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 was, it was fascinating. I, I got to say, if I can, you know, there's a guy named Gary Stewart who was really the architect of Rhino. Right. Um, he was the head of the a department and he was just... Um, you know, a guy who was in so in love with music and pop culture and had an encyclopedic knowledge of everything. Uh, and he really was responsible for uh, the Rhino way and sort of bringing the, this music to, to the masses. Um, and he uh, committed suicide uh, mm. last April, 2019. And I began my work at Rhino as his, as his assistant. Oh, my. Okay. And then I later got, I moved up through the ranks. I later became an AR executive there. Uh, but he was, he was a huge mentor to me. Yeah. Uh, and just, uh, and, and really a seminal figure in the music business. Yeah. He left Rhino and then he was personally recruited by Steve Jobs mm. to uh, launch all the Essentials series within uh, Apple iTunes. Uh, and so, yeah, the album is dedicated to him oh. uh, because uh, he was really, um, my first album I made, he, um, he paid for it. Wow. He paid for my first album. And, and he, uh, I remember I was his assistant. I was doing, sort of doing it on the side and he sort of got wind of it and uh, he said to me, uh, stop asking for stop asking for permission uh, to be in a club that you're already a member of. Oh, wow! Uh, you, you only worked with eloquent people, apparently. I, I've, I've been really lucky to have some smart, beautiful, generous uh, people in my life. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the album. I know that on one track, uh, your daughter yeah. performs. Tell me about that. That's the lead track on the album, "Stranger Than Today." It, it's, it's a little bit of a, it, it's, it's it's the least bluesy song. It's certainly not a blues song. Um, it, it's a little. Uh, it's it's a series of impressions. Each verse is really about something completely different, uh, and there's sort of a cryptic little Walter reference in there, and a cryptic reference to my father, and um, it, so it's this sort of a, a expressionistic, uh, sort of bittersweet story. Um, and my daughter sings harmony on it. She's a great singer. She's actually a pre-med student now. <laughs> she has no interest in getting in, in the music business. But she's a big music lover, and we've always bonded through music. It's been a thing we've shared, both as listeners and, and as sort of a, uh, and singing together. Uh, I do a YouTube series called Kitchen Table Blues, and she sings. Uh, and she has sung with me on that. And she used to sing live a little bit, but she has massive stage fright. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she's a beautiful voice, and so she sings on the song. I recently relocated to Texas. And uh, and so and she went off to college, and there's been a lot of changes in our family, and so we took a road trip from Dallas to Austin over the uh, Christmas break, and I brought a video camera, and we just taped our road trip, and that became the music video for the song. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, yeah, I'm really it's it's uh, it means a lot for me to have her on it. She's a uh, she's a uh, she's my 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 closest you know colleague. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's fantastic, and. And she didn't demand uh, freedom. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no points, and she's not. Yeah, she, there's an easy deal to make. <laughs> Pulling up behind the half line, stranger than today. Changing shoes before the warning. Shouldn't be surprised. Running loose between the blue sky Couldn't say we tried So, you, you know, the Americana environment is, uh, you know, the music we call Americana now 
can go back forever, obviously. Sure. But it, the institution is more or less 20 years old. Um, and not very diverse. And um, and not particularly embracing of the blues. There's certainly some artists. It's happening a little bit. You know, Fantastic Negrito was at the awards like yeah. a year or two ago. Yeah. And, you know, Gary Clark Jr. is, you know, popping around there. And Steve Jordan, who's also right. a good friend of mine, is... Uh, Certainly got a foot in there with some artists he's worked with, but I agree with you totally. It, it, it's not diverse. I mean, I, I'm you know like the 30A um, songwriter festival in uh, in Santa Rosa uh, earlier in the year, and uh, you know I think I was probably the only black guy walking around. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, and I I'm not sure why that is because so many who love Americana, I mean they love roots, they yeah. love the music. That make contemporary music what it is, and it's just um, certainly uh, rhythm and blues probably has a little bit more of an inroad and opportunity to to, to be heard in America. Yeah. But um, at WMOT, we're I mean we're really diverse in our programming, but I would I would say you could listen to a, a couple of hours and it would just be white artist after yeah. white artist, and that's in part because the product's just not not there. You know, it's funny. I mentioned how you know twenty years ago I was making Americana records. Right, right? Right. The, 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 before it's called Americana, and uh, I think Ben Harper maybe has for sound coming in at that time. And I was definitely a fish out of water. And a lot of folks couldn't grapple with the fact that I was a black guy singing about you know black topics, but black topics that were like modern day black topics, and singing it with a banjo in the background or a fiddle. And it was just it was just a complete you know their minds were sort of exploding on it. Um, a little bit's changed now. I mean, I think I think in part because of the crumbling of the old distribution system, right? So we live in this niche market world now, and so everyone's sort of finding all the things they dig. Uh, and I think that you know, as, as a result, people naturally cross pollinate, or you know, hopefully they do. And, and so it's it, it seems like these institutions like the Americana Fest or you know even you know the, the the Blues Foundation they're recognizing that people are not putting the same labels on things that they want to put on them right. and it's opening up a little bit but it, it, it's tough man I, it's sort of one of the same as with this band I mean look you know the idea of the Brotherhood is um, you know we are you know three out of four of us are black you know men you know making roots music uh, and some of it's very decidedly blues and some of it's you know definitely not. And it is a little bit of a shot across the bow. Yeah. Um, and, and I hope that people will, uh, will, will receive it as such. So we've heard two tracks from the yeah. album. And uh, another friend of yours is on, uh, on the album, and it's a song uh, with Ruthie Foster. How did yeah. you know Ruthie? I, we met Ruthie recently. She's in Austin. She was in Austin. I, t- I moved to uh, Texas. Yeah, we recorded the album in Wimberley, Texas, which is just south of Austin yeah. in Texas Hill Country. And we're about to make the record... My instinct was to go back to LA and record because it's my home, and I, I was missing home. And, and I thought, no, I, I gotta like dig in here. I gotta figure out how to make sense of Texas <laughs> in some way. And so we went to Wembley, recorded, and Ruthie lives nearby. And at the studio where we recorded Blue Rock Ranch, um, they said, hey, you know, you should meet Ruthie. She's really dynamite, and, uh, and I, I'd not met her before. And she's, you know, she's this powerhouse. She's like four feet tall or something. She's, she's like, she comes up to like me you on know, my my chest, and she's. But she has this voice that is just like, you know, Mavis kind of, you know, voice. Uh, and she fell in love with the song. And so she drove down from Austin to Wimberley. And, and we did the thing together. And, uh, yeah, man, it's hair-raising. And, she, you know, we're going to do some gigs together this year. We've sort of become a little mutual admiration society now. And the song is called Troubled Man? Troubled Man. Here's Troubled Man with Ruthie Foster joining the Reverend Sean Amos. People feel- 
That was Troubled Man from the new album from Reverend Sean Amos and the Brotherhood. The name of that album? Blue Sky. Blue Sky. And uh, I have to ask you now, you are the Reverend Sean Amos. Are you, are you the Reverend Sean Amos like the Reverend Al Green? I, I wouldn't go, I'm not, I'm not as far as that. I'm not as far as that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a church. I, I, I say I'm, I'm a preacher in the, uh, the traveling church of the blues. Uh, yeah, I, I started, I fell in love with blues I was a listener of it. I was a practitioner. I wasn't a practitioner. But I was a lover of it, and I'd produced, you know, John Lee Hooker's box set, and I'd done all sorts of stuff as a compilation producer. And so I, I certainly was a massive student of it, but I never wanted to perform it. Kind of what we're talking about earlier with the whole Americana thing. I felt like it was too cliche in a way. I thought, you know, I, I want to be, I want to be a roots artist. I want to be an Americana <laughs> artist, and, and to, you know, to play blues is exactly the thing that everyone would expect of me to do. And so I, I went to great lengths to avoid playing blues for a long time. But I got invited to Italy in 2012 by an old bandmate, uh, and we played blues in Italy for, for two weeks. And I just, like, it was undeniable. I fell so in love with the music as a performer and the elemental nature of it and the simplicity of it. And, just, and, just, and it made me really proud um, to be a black man. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it sort of it helped me sort of self-identify in a way that I had difficulty self-identifying. Are you a vocalist in that and not a... You don't play? I say I play harmonica. So okay. I, I play, I, it's fine. I went to Italy to sing and to play sax. I used to play sax. And I left there singing and playing harmonica. Okay. Um, so when we're playing there, the Italian crowd, after every night, they go, Reverendo, El Reverendo. And I'm like, what the hell are they saying? <laughs> and it's because the music was bringing something out in me that was really different than how I played before. Because pre- when I was doing my sort of singer-songwriter thing, I was, you know, shoegazer and super sensitive and everything was really precious. And, and something about the blues music brought out this entertainer in me that I didn't know existed. Wow. And I'm jumping up on tables and I'm doing the whole <laughs> sort of testifying thing because I was just having so much fun with this music. And so that was the reverendo thing. So you're so passionate. You're like a reverend. <laughs> so when I got back to the States, I'm like, well, if, they're calling, you know, if Italian Catholics are calling me a reverend, I better be a reverend. And so I kept the moniker. And it also helped me create a little bit of distance between sort of like my day life and my performance sure. life. Um, but I thought, okay, if I want to call myself a reverend, I better really be a reverend. So uh, through an internet search, I found Universal Life Church, and me and Conan O'Brien and you know, Jack Black and whoever else were, were all reverends in the Universal Life Church. But I've officiated six weddings. So, uh, <laughs> well, then you're a real yeah, so, that's yeah, right. I'm, I'm legit. That's, a, that's great. <laughs> no funerals. And so you've got an alter ego. It's a Clark Kent Superman thing. Yeah, you'd start off as that. It's less so. They're, they're pretty, you know, they've come together more holistically. Same guy now, years. huh? Yeah. That's great. Well, I want to ask you, uh, I was mentioning earlier that I've, I've visited your website and, and uh, came across uh, your, your cover of I'm the Face, which as a white suburban kid growing up in the 60s and early 70s, know as the high numbers, the yeah. who before they were the who, and a song that Roger Daltrey sang. Yeah. Um, but I also know there's a strikingly similar Slim Harpo song What's the story? Got love if you want it. Yeah, so that song was stolen. I mean, like I, we, we uh, you know, like, like all you know, uh, sort of you know, pilgrims. You know, people come and they, you know, they sort of bring new things to a land, and they go back and they steal things. And that's yeah. like, that was the story of the British invasion. Right, <laughs> so, right, yeah. so they they brought us our music back, uh, for which I'm thankful. And, and then they they left with a few things, right. uh, and you know, Led Zeppelin famously was cribbing Willie Dixon, you know, stuff. And um, but the high numbers had a manager named Pete Meaden. 
uh, at the time before Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp took over management, uh, more famously. Uh, and Pete Meaden himself was a frustrated songwriter. Mm. And so he wrote on the face, basically copying a Slim Harpo song called Got Love If You Want It. So musically, it's identical. Right. And then on the face, the face was like obviously part of the mod scene. So the face was sort of the leader of the mod gang. So, um, and already at that time, the Who was, or then the high numbers, but the Who were trying to align themselves with the mod movement, which is the hip thing at the time in Britain. And so I'm the, uh, so he made, he wrote these lyrics that are all sort of British mod based, but it's got love you want. So we play it live. So musically, our version is really sort of uh, owes itself to Slum Harpo's version, although we were singing uh, Meaden's lyrics. But yeah, we, we, uh, when we do it live, we actually sing the last verse of Slum Harpo's song oh, to remind people that uh, they need to give due proper due or credit is due. You know, I listen to music all the time, but sometimes when you come across something you've heard for the last 40 years of your life, mm-hmm. done particularly vibrantly, it, it, was, a, it was a treat to Good. hear it. Well yeah, done. yeah. That, that, it's fun song to play live. It, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it sort of stood the test of time in our sense. Well, our time is almost up, but I want to ask you, you mentioned that uh, Quincy Jones emphasized you can plan, 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 but something spontaneous can always happen. You strike me as a planner. Yeah. What is your plan uh, for the Reverend Sean Amos and the Brotherhood? What where is this going from here? Well, you know, the, the year is for us to play as much as possible and expand the tent. You know, I mean, we we've we've been playing. I've been playing blues for you know, I guess almost five years now, and uh, it's been lovely. And we've got our we have a good foothold in that world. Um, you know, I I miss the Americana world. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I've always been able to have a, I wouldn't say a chip on my shoulder, but I've always been. It stung a little bit that um, you know the stuff I've done uh, and the sort of roads I've been down have never been you know fully embraced by that world. Uh, we'd like to come home to that world a little bit, and hopefully the album will, will allow us to do that. Great. Well, we're pleased to have you on America. Thanks, man. Appreciate uh, it. What I've heard of the album is is terrific, Thank and you. Uh, I predict a bright future. Thank you for your time, you Sean. It's a real pleasure. See you soon, man. Thank you. Our thanks to Erica Nalo for her always sterling production and to Dave Paulson for writing the theme music. This is Americana One.